guys. What's going on? Your host, George McKay, back again in the studio. And man, do I have a treat for you today. I have a WWE legend, my own opinion, and I think he'll agree with me as well, in studio with me today via Skype. Please welcome Duke the Dumpster Drossy. How are you, sir? I'm doing just fine. Thank you for having me on your show. Well, no problem. Thank you for taking out the time. Anytime I get a chance to talk to any, you know, legend, anybody who's been in the business, as long as you have anybody that was there, you know, in any time period, it's always exciting for me. I'm a fan first and foremost, and this is just a huge honor. So thank you in advance for taking the time out of my little podcast today. No problem at all. So, uh, Duke, the, one of the questions I always ask, I start every interview with it. It's, I like to call it the defining moment. It's when we, I ask you when you fell in love with this business that we're going to talk about today. You know, I've, I've answered this question a few times and I've, I've thought about it. Uh, you know, I, I was a wrestling fan when I was a kid. I grew up down in Miami, Florida, and I used to watch championship wrestling from Florida. But I will say this, the absolute defining moment where I stood up and actually said out loud that I wanted to be a professional wrestler was watching WrestleMania one. Uh, sitting with my dad, we were sitting in the Miami beach convention center, watching it on a big closed circuit television screen because there was no pay-per-view then. And, um, you know, surrounding all the hype with Hulk Hogan and Mr. T, uh, and that match. And as I just, as I sat there watching that WrestleMania, the first WrestleMania unfold and all of the stars and everything else that was involved. I realized at that moment, I wanted to be a professional wrestler. That's a great moment, man. That's a huge moment. I mean, especially when you get to share with your dad like that, that's huge. Those, those memories, they always stand the test of time for sure. Yeah. And he would become an integral part in me, uh, becoming a professional wrestler. My dad, that is later on as well. So, all right. Well, we'll get into that in a little bit, but uh, in doing my research as I've done, because when I was a kid, I, I used to love when you used to come out and actually uh, I used to love when you came out with the garbage can, thought that was great. And you actually feuded uh, with one of my all time favorites. I'm a huge uh, Triple H fan. I was a Triple H fan from when he was terrorizing and you actually feuded with him when he before he transitioned into Triple H and he was Hunter Hearst Helmsley. And uh, you actually handed him his first loss via disqualification. And correct me if my memory's wrong, but I think that match was to determine who was going to be number 30 in that year's Royal Rumble. Am I right? That is exactly correct. Um, what happened is, uh, you know, it's, and I've told this story before, it was my contract was coming up and they were not using me very much uh, at the end of my initial two year contract. Uh, I was not on TV much and I was getting really frustrated. And I actually decided at a TV taping uh, to take a stand when they wanted me to do a job for a new guy coming in. That new guy was the ringmaster stone cold, Steve Austin before he was stone cold. And I said, I told Bruce Pritchard, I said, I didn't want to do it because you know, you guys are just killing me and I don't know what I'm doing wrong. So, uh, of course I spoke to Steve and we've been friends ever since, but he understood why I was doing it. It had nothing to do with him, but what they did is, you know, Vince took me aside the next day at the next TV day. And he talked to me 
And uh, I was just frustrated. I said, you know, I'm trying to figure out what I'm, you know, I'm getting in great shape. I was doing all these things, moving in the right direction, and they were using me less, it seemed. So, you know, Vince, of course, assured me everything was fine and good things were coming. And the very first angle they handed me out of that was Triple H, was Hunter Hearst Helmsley. And they did the deal. We were on that first free-for-all match. I guess it was, I can't remember if it was before, which pay-per-view it was before. Um, But it was for the 30th spot, and the loser had to go out first, of course. And, of course, Hunter Hearst Helmsley had to go out first in the Rumble that year. But, yeah, it was in the first free-for-all, and I beat him by, of course disqualification because Lord knows I wasn't going to pin him. I could never pin anybody, but it was that interesting finish where gorilla monsoon had to come out and reverse the decision <laughs> and give, because Hunter Hearst Helmsley used brass nuts on me or something. So yeah, that pushed us kind of into the rumble. And of course that he, that, that became the issue with Hunter Hearst Helmsley. he, he said that he felt like he didn't have a good shot at the rumble because of me. And then they, they extended it out on the next TV taping on the superstars taping. He ran out after one of my matches and attacked me and gave me the pedigree face first, right into the garbage can lid in the middle of the ring and cut my hair, which that was my idea because I was really kind of pushing to turn heel. And I wanted to change my image and change the way I looked. So we kind of all talked about it and I decided I wanted to go ahead and cut my hair and they did. And Jim Ross wanted to use it in the angle. So that's how we did it. And I just told them, I said, you know, as long as you, I said, I know I'm probably not going to win in the big blow off, but as long as I get some kind of redemption in the end, I know I'm not going to cut his hair and I know I'm not going to pin him because I wasn't stupid. I knew how, the politics worked at the time and he was in with the click, but you know, they promised me I would, I would get, you know, some redemption and move on to the next thing. And then in the end, that's not how it worked. They just kind of beat me. He hit me in the face with the lid on the, in your house pay-per-view pinned me. He moved on to the ultimate warrior and I moved on back to losing to new guys as they came in the company. So, you know, once they got me to sign that new contract, <laughs> they gave me, they gave, they, they dangled that carrot in my face and then they moved on. So that's kind of how it works. Yeah. It, and then that's unfortunate too, because I, I, as a kid, I always remember how much fun it was watching you come out. I remember a couple of matches on superstars, a Saturday night main event and stuff like that. And they were always entertaining for me. And I, I just wish that, I mean, do you feel in that time period, if there wasn't like a lot of people, when they talk about that time period, they do mention the click quite frequently. Uh, I, I interviewed Barry Horowitz and I interviewed Fred Ottman, who were both kind of in and around in that time period as well. And the click was very, very much established and and like doing what they set out to do. Now, WWE released a DVD, you know, the click rules and stuff like that. But in my opinion, I find it to be very one sided. Because it's only them telling their story, and we're not really hearing from kind of outside sources. We're still hearing from sources within the WWE as a whole. So you being that kind of impartial outside source, was the click as really you know bad as as they claimed to be? Were they always you know getting in everyone's faces? And did they really have Vince McMahon wrapped around their finger? The short answer is yes. They had Vince wrapped around their finger. It was, it was because though they were a tight knit 
group of main event to mid card guys that had each other's backs, which was not, you didn't see that very often in the wrestling business. Everybody, you know, smiles in each other's faces, but they, you know, they would stab each other in the back in a heartbeat. If it meant a better, better spot, they pretty much stuck together. And they also discussed payoffs, which was something nobody ever did. You know, the boys would never discuss how much they got paid on a pay-per-view or something, but that group of guys did. And they realized that Vince was just paying some guys and not paying other guys and they could be in the same match. And it was just what he decided to pay people. And when they went back to the office saying that they didn't agree with how the pay system was, that's where they probably gained a large part of their power because the office realized they were talking about payoffs. And so I think they got special treatment to kind of keep them just kind of contained into their own group, the click, uh, and not go around and start talking to other people. And they were happy in the group. And, and it was a tight knit group of guys. They rode together. They talked about wrestling a lot. You know, they always talked, talked wrestling. Um, and they got what they got. You know, they were just ambitious guys. Um, a lot of people didn't like them. Um, you know, I, I was kind of one of these guys that hang, hung out with everybody. Um, I got along with people, although I knew that they didn't give a shit about me. Um, but we would, I would go out to the bar and stuff with those guys. Um, but I also realized, you know, I don't, I don't think they were holding me back. I've heard of them starving this saying they would, tell the office to starve certain wrestlers uh, to see if they can make them quit. But I don't think, I mean, I don't think I ever really saw that happen. Um, maybe it did. It could have happened to me because there was a stretch there where I wasn't making any money and maybe it could have been them, but I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think they were trying to starve anybody or anything, but they were very powerful. They were, um, a cocky group of guys, man. They, you know, um, they were powerful and they let you know about it. Um, but they were, you know, they were at the time they were what the office was going with, uh, whether they were getting over or not, that's a matter of opinion. Um, but for that time they were, what was getting over and getting over with the office. So they were getting the push. Um, I just, I know I realized later on in hindsight, I could have done things to get myself over and I did, wouldn't have had to worry about the click. A lot of guys, I think spent too much time worrying about the click and what they were doing instead of worrying about their own position and their own wrestling career. It's, there's always things you can do to get over, especially when live TV is when it comes to live television. So, um, that's kind of how I felt about the click. I, I, there was times where I'd go out with guys like Sean and Scott Hall and diesel and the kid, you know, we would all go out and to bars and stuff together. Uh, but I wasn't one that was included in that group. I wouldn't, uh, there was rare occasions I would ride with them and stuff like that, but, um, I wasn't a regular in that group. That's for sure. Um, but, I, like I said, I tried to get along with everybody. 
One hundred percent. And I think that's the, the best way to go about things is is to go in, you know, do your job like you did and collect your check and and kind of go home and stuff like that. And I, I think that's what you did. I think that's an interesting take, though, on on what you said. And and I, I believe it to be true. I mean, I wasn't there, but I believe to be that there was um there was again, you can only take so much you can take from the DVD that's put out by the WWE, because, of course, you're not going to get the full story. So it's it was fantastic to get that kind of impartial opinion. I, I do thank you for that. One thing I did want to ask about, because, you know, you left in July of uh, 1996, uh, your final television, uh, I guess, match with superstars where you lost to uh, a TL Hopper, who I, I don't even remember. I even tried to find that match online and I, I couldn't because I, I don't think he went any further than probably that match. So when you kind of went on the indie circuit and then uh, something interesting kind of happened a little bit later on, uh, WrestleMania 17. You came back and you were in that kind of battle royal that the Iron Sheik eventually won. How was that to kind of step away for, you know, a few years and then come back? Was it was it a different company from when you left it or was it just, yeah, you know what? I'll come back. I'll I'll do my little one kind of curtain call situation and I'll uh, I'll leave. Like, how, how was that going back at WrestleMania 17 being in that battle royal? Well, the funny thing about it is when I left, the business business was down. WCW was kicking WWF's ass big time. And it, it by some accounts, it looked like WCW was going to take over. And, you know, it was very questionable as to what was going to happen with the World Wrestling Federation at the exact at that moment where I left. Um, when I left, by the time I left, though, I was using drugs, painkillers and stuff like that and drinking too much. And I was just not mentally in a good place. So when I left, I didn't like go out a lot. I mean, I did a few independent matches, but I really didn't go out on the indie scene. Of course, the indie scene wasn't like it is today either. But um, I just kind of went home and buried my head in the sand a little bit and you know, the drug and alcohol use got worse. Uh, so by the time they brought me back for actually, I called Bruce Pritchard because somebody told me about the gimmick battle Royal and I called and they brought me up for it. Um, by then it was a much different atmosphere, man. The WWF had taken over and <laughs> you know, uh, WCW was still that out there, but it was on its last dying legs. And, uh, when I showed up, when I went to WrestleMania 17, as I said before, I was taking a lot of painkillers and stuff like that, and I was really in no shape to wrestle. So I was really kind of embarrassed to be there, believe it or not. It wasn't like this great WrestleMania moment. It was just I got in there, you know, kind of hid from people <laughs> and did the match and got out of there and got the payday um, because I was just – not in a good place at that time. Um, but that's what happened with WrestleMania. Um, and yeah, the company had completely changed. Everybody was, you know, when I left, everybody was in a shitty mood. Nobody was really making money. But when I came back during WrestleMania 17, you know, the rock was there and stone cold was in full force and everybody was making money and everybody was in a much better mood. And, um, just unfortunately I was in no, no condition to come back and work for the company. So I kind of left after that and went back to burying my head in the sand. 
When you say you were in no condition, I mean, you did mention the drug use and the drinking and stuff like that. If you felt that you were in no condition, was there something that kind of pushed you towards kind of coming back and making that phone call to Bruce Pritchard and saying, hey, you know, I heard about the gimmick Battle Royal. I'd love to be a part of it. Was it was it just to be to be honest? And I, if I come across course, I do apologize. Was it just for the money or did you want to, you know, maybe see if things had changed? See if you still had some of that kind of fire left in you, I guess, when you started in the business, if you don't mind me asking. Well, it was WrestleMania. It was definitely the paid payoff. I knew, you know, it would be a decent payoff. Um, and I also knew it wouldn't be difficult because it was a battle Royal with a bunch of guys that were mostly older than I was. Um, so I, I, you know, all around it, it, you know, it was, I could, it was a manageable situation. Um, and then again, yeah, it was mainly for the money. Um, you know, I went back in. And I talked a little bit to Bruce Pritchard and stuff about some things I was doing down in Florida. I had a ring at the time and I was kind of working with this independent company down there some, but that was, you know, that was about to end as well, just cause I couldn't keep it together. But I was trying to push, you know, kind of some of the stuff I was doing to maybe get back involved somehow with the WWF, but it was just kind of dreaming, you know, it was ridiculous. Cause as I said before, I was in no condition. I, I had lost a lot of weight. I was not in ring shape. Um, and again, I was using drugs and alcohol heavily. So, um, you know, it was just, I don't know, all around mentally, I was not in a good place, but yeah, it was for the payoff. I will have to say it was for the payoff and going to WrestleMania. That, that was it. Absolutely. And after, after that and stuff like that, from what I've researched online, again, uh, it looks like you, uh, you went into teaching, if I'm not mistaken. I think you went into special education teaching. Are you still doing that? No, man, I've come a long way since, uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> a long way, like in good ways and bad ways since then. But after uh, the WrestleMania, I stayed in Florida till about 2003. In 2001, I got fired from that independent company just because I couldn't keep it together. And uh, I just kind of hung around getting worse as far as drugs and stuff till 2003. Then my family, who lived up mainly in Tennessee, flew me up to Tennessee and put me in rehab the first time. And I went through rehab and did all that. And decided to get my life back together then. And I went back to school, got a master's degree, became a special education teacher and a coach and all these things. Um, and it was going good for a while, uh, until I got a foot injury and decided for some reason, it might be a good idea for me to start taking painkillers again. And that started, that was the beginning of the end. Um, you know, basically it was a relapse and, that was in about 2009 and by 2000 and I was still teaching all this time, kind of keeping it, trying to keep it together. By 2013, I had become an IV drug user. I was still teaching, barely holding on to the job, but I was by night I was running around getting drugs out on the street to the point where I got into legal trouble. I got arrested um, and caught two felony charges basically for selling pills to a guy that was like one of my drug dealers, he got busted and they flipped him and he set up a bunch of people. So, uh, he bought pills from me one day and they came and arrested me. And after that, 
I basically went as part of my plea deal here. I went through the drug court program here in Warren County, Tennessee, and I completed that in 2015. And immediately upon me finishing that program, they, the drug court program hired me and that's where I work now. That's that, you know, that's fantastic. I mean, yeah, it was definitely up and down, you know, peaks and valleys for sure, but that's amazing. That's a, that's a great story of, of overcoming everything. And, uh, you know, kudos to you for doing that, man. It's not easy to, uh, to overcome that. I've never fallen to addiction, but I have had some friends who have, and I see the battles and the struggles they go through, uh, almost on a daily basis. I've had one friend who's been, you know, clean and sober for, uh, I think it's going on about 10 years now, but I still see the struggle sometimes when he's in around crowds and people and stuff like that. So it can't be easy. That's a hundred percent for sure. But kudos to you for, it sounds like the new, the new uh, the job that you took once you completed the program, sounds like that's amazing. And you're able to give back. So that's fantastic. That really is. Yeah. And plus it's a good thing to do, you know, a big part of recovery eventually when, when you get, you know, in it long enough, you start trying to help other people. And that's part of what I do now. And in, in turn, that's another thing that helps me keep my head on my shoulders and keep me clean and sober is working with other people. Cause I see people at different stages of it, you know, just first getting clean, going to rehab or been in jail for a while or trying to stay clean. And it, it reminds me of all those different places that I've been. Um, but you know, I, when I got arrested, that was it. I knew, I mean, I I still had to go to rehab to physically get clean because I couldn't just quit on my own because that's how powerful those drugs are. But I knew at that moment when I got arrested, that was it. I said, I said to myself, I had to get clean. And then, then I had to do whatever it took to continue living a clean life in recovery. You see, because the first time when I, my family brought me up here in 2003, I got clean I went to rehab, but then I didn't do anything afterwards. I didn't, I did not keep up with, you know, recovery, going to meetings and stuff like that. This time I realized I had to do whatever it took and I got heavily involved in the recovery community and that's, what's kept me clean. It's made it so much easier this time. Um, you know, it's so much easier to deal with the crazy thoughts and stuff that we go through as addicts. So, uh, this time, because I'm involved and again, working with that drug court program um, that keeps my head <laughs> screwed on straight many times. So, a hundred percent for sure. And uh, you know, uh, one one point I, I do want to ask, or one question I do want to ask, uh, sorry, is um, you know, there's been documentaries that have been coming out now. Uh, uh, all the drug use and how easily things were back in the day in the wrestling business. You've got the dark side of wrestling. You've got that documentary 350 days where a lot of wrestlers have openly come out about how easy it was to obtain that kind of stuff. Uh, what are your thoughts on all these kind of wrestlers coming forward now and the stories that they're sharing now about how kind of dark the business was back in those time periods? Well, I mean, it's important in a lot of ways. It's important for the new guys coming up to hear those, those stories in hopes that they don't fall prey to the same situations. Um, I know the business is a, is a lot different now. Uh, you know, they've got the wellness program and stuff like that, that, you know, apparently they keep up with making sure people don't fall, you know, into addiction and stuff like that, which is good. Um, but I think it's also important that people are coming out and talking about the way it was 
Um, and it was the way it was, uh, not because of anything Vince McMahon did, or you know, people always try to blame Vince for all these guys who became drug addicts and ended up overdosing or dying or killing themselves. You know, and that's ridiculous. We were all grown adults. Um, I, I don't. It was in no way any promoter's fault that wrestlers were doing the things they were doing. Um, you know, maybe as a company, the WWF could have had a tighter kind of uh, grip on stuff like that, which they ended up doing later. But still, we were grown adults. We were going to do what we were going to do. Um, and it was always easy. It was easy to get stuff. Um <clears throat> There was doctors in every state and every country, you know, that were wrestling fans and that were more than willing to give a wrestler anything they wanted. Um, you know, and that's, that's just the way it was. Um, I hear it's not that way anymore. It doesn't look like it's that way anymore, but, and that's a good thing. Um, but yeah, that's just kind of the way it was. And, and, you know, I've often heard people try to blame Vince or promoters or companies, and that's just kind of ridiculous. You know, um, if they saw somebody had a problem, they would deal with it. They would try to get that person help. Um, but it was what it was, man. Um, I'm just glad I'm one of the survivors. Uh, you know, I, it's funny. I was <laughs> not that I, I saw Rikishi at WrestleCon this past year and, you know, Rikishi was never had any substance abuse problems or anything, but he said something when I saw him at WrestleCon that was very, uh, interesting. He said, we made it, we, you know, we survived, we made it. And he was referring to the fact that a lot of our brothers are dead and that is so true. Um, so I'm happy that I'm still able to be here walking the earth today, man. Cause I could have very easily been one of those statistics. As a matter of fact, people often ask me if I regret the fact that I left the world wrestling federation literally right before the attitude era started. And I, I used to have a lot of regret because I looked at it as I could have made a lot of money and possibly become rich. But you know, during that era, Steve Austin called it the wild, wild west days because it was the attitude era was kind of even crazier, I think, than when I was there. And um, a lot of guys started dying. So I, I could have very well been one of those statistics. So that's the way I look at it now. You know, it would have been great to have been there. You know, who knows what, what would have happened. But the way drug use was going and as crazy as I was. I could have very well ended up being one of the dead wrestlers. So, you know, I don't regret it anymore. Oh, 100%. Uh, one thing you mentioned earlier in the kind of the beginning of the podcast was your dad and how influential he would be in becoming and helping you or shaping you into becoming a wrestler. Can you, can you tell me about that? Yeah, it's funny because in, in my dad always supported everything and uh, he's still uh, living today and, we often talk about it, but he always supported what I did. Amateur wrestling, playing football, if I did that. Um, but when you know, I stood up at WrestleMania 1, I turned to him and I said, this is what I want to do. Uh, from that moment, he did everything in his power to help me attain that. And it's funny because the way that I found a wrestling school at that time down in Miami, Florida, I was on the amateur wrestling team for the high school. And at the end of my senior year wrestling season, 
we did a fundraiser where we brought in the championship wrestling from Florida people to do a show in our gym to raise money. And I'm talking about Dusty Rhodes, Barry Windham, Lex Luger, all those guys. And the rest, the amateur wrestlers from the team got to work security and walk them to and from the ring. Well, you know, my dad was there and you know, he kept talking to me, but this is your opportunity. You need to find out how to go about learning to become a professional wrestler. I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. But I wasn't doing it because I was a chicken shit. Well, he walked in the locker room, started asking those guys. And there was a wrestler wrestling that at that time named Tyree pride, the Haitian sensation, Tyree pride. He was big down in Florida and he had, he was working with a guy that was his tag team partner, Bobby Wales, the Jamaican jammer, Bobby Wales, who had a ring set up in a warehouse in Opelika, Florida. Um, which interestingly is also where Norman Smiley started out. Uh, and it was in the same kind of warehouses where MVP started out later on, but that's my dad found out where the school was. And he got me all the information so I could go and start. And he actually paid, you know, I was still in high school, but he paid, he was like $1,800. And within six months, I was wrestling in my first match. But yeah, my dad was always very supportive. My whole family was. But he was always an integral part in uh, me continuing, you know, uh, in the wrestling business and trying to, you know, reach my goals and all the things I wanted to do in the, in the wrestling business. So yeah, that's awesome. man. when you have that family support behind you, that's, that's huge. And uh, one question I'm, I'm curious about, because, you know, you were, you were in a, in the business in, in a time period right before kind of everything percolated before, you know, us wrestling fans got to just live our wildest fantasies with the attitude error. But is there anybody that you never got the chance to wrestle that, if given the opportunity, kind of like I say, your dream match that you would have loved to step in the ring with if you had had the opportunity to? Um, I may not have known it at the time, but looking back, Shawn Michaels, um, you know, a lot of people don't like him, didn't like him. Um, I thought he was kind of a dickhead, but in that ring, he was one of the best. Um, I would have loved to work with him. I would have loved to have worked with Bret Hart. I would have loved to have worked with The Undertaker. Uh, you know, all those guys that were on top back in those days, I would have loved to have the opportunity to work with. Definitely probably be the three guys that were at currently at the, that were at the, in the world wrestling federation at the same time that I was now, I could also go back and look at like, I would have loved to have worked with a Ric Flair in his prime or a Harley race, you know, and those kind of guys like an Arn Anderson. Um, so yeah. And I would have loved to have the opportunity to work with Steve Austin more. we only wrestled, I think, in a couple matches. So those are some of the kinds of people I would have enjoyed getting the opportunity to work with. Yeah, and I think those probably would have been some great matches, man. Like I said, when I was a kid, I always enjoyed watching you come out, even if it was for five minutes or ten minutes. I didn't care. I I, I really enjoyed you, your character as a kid. I thought it was cool. Like, dude walks out with a garbage can. I remember the first time you debuted, and uh, we, it was kind of like the first taste of hardcore wrestling that I had ever seen was you and uh, Jerry Lawler. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, if memory serves me, I think he hit, did he hit you with the can or did you hit him with the can? He hit me with the can. It was funny because that was live, live Monday Night Raw on the King's Court. And uh, 
the it was my very first deal. And right before that, like a cup a week or two before that on Superstars, on my very first debut match, I walked out and he was standing off to the side like he was gonna interview me and he put a clothespin on his nose. Jerry Lawler did. So I dumped garbage all over his head. So then I was, you know, fast forward to Monday Night Raw on live Raw, I was on the King's Court. And we did this interview thing and he wouldn't let me get in the ring. He wouldn't let me talk. He said I stunk and all these things and blah, blah, blah. So I turned to walk away. I said, I don't want to talk to you anyway. You're a piece of garbage. And I walked away and he ran up and jumped me from behind and hit me with the can. Now, the funny thing is we see me and Jerry were me and Lawler were talking beforehand saying, you know, how do you want to do this or whatever? They just wanted him to jump me. And he goes, you know, I kind of, maybe I should hit you with the can, you know, that might give it some heat. And I said, I'm willing to do whatever, you know, um, I was just thrilled to be there at that point. And, uh, we, there was the agent, I believe that was handling our segment was Jack Lanza. And we went to him and said, do you think it would be okay? Can we ask them if we can use the can? And I just remember Jack Lanza looked at us with that look, that scowl, and he goes, screw it. It's live TV. Just do it. <laughs> so we went out. And we, and, and we did and it's, a, it's a memory that lives on for me. Yeah, and we went out, we did it, and Jerry jumped me, and he hit me with the can. And if you watch it, it's on, it's on YouTube. If you watch it, they immediately cut the camera to a far, far, far angle in the far corner of the – because they didn't want – that to be shown up close, the office freaked out. It was, it was deemed too violent for, for the product at the time. In fact, they came right back to live raw and gorilla monsoon and Randy macho man savage who were doing the commentary came back on and apologized for what had just happened. So all the people in the back were freaking out. Shane McMahon ran up to me and he goes, what happened? And I said, ah, we asked if we could do it. They said, okay. So we did it. <laughs> and he was just kind of looking at me like I was crazy, like right out of the gate, this kid's jumping right into it. So that's kind of how that went down. It was a funny story, but unfortunately I, I think it also kind of killed the angle in the eyes of the office because they made Jerry Lawler come on superstars the next weekend and apologize. And this really stupid, like comical thing. And, it just kind of threw a bucket of ice water on the heat. And uh, it then it just kind of died a slow death. You know, it it, it should have ended in a pay-per-view match somewhere, and it didn't. Um, it ended on a Monday Night Raw with Doink and Dink the Clown getting involved. And then they had an angle with him later on, but that was it. That was the big blow-off. And once again, I beat Jerry the King Lawler on Monday Night Raw with a count out, <laughs> you know, I could never pin anybody to save my life. I don't know why Duke, the dumpster was never good enough to pin anybody apparently, but yeah, that's kind of how that whole thing went down, man. And, uh, I guess it, it pissed the office off and it kind of killed the angle for us, but you know, it was what it was. Uh, we went out and did it. They say it's better to ask for forgiveness than ask for permission. And that's basically what we did. 100%. And like I said, that's a memory that lives on with me forever. So thank you for having a, a special place in my heart when it comes to wrestling. And my uh, final question. 
Yes. Uh, this one, this one might be a little bit, uh, you know, heartwarming, I guess we could say, we'll try to find that heartwarming moment. We've had a lot of those tonight. You've been very honest and candid with me and I, I can't thank you enough for that. And before I ask the last question, I want to let you know that you are now officially a member of the straight talk wrestling family. Anytime you want to come back on the show, Duke, I would be honored and love to have you back on the show. Uh, and my final question, if there is a young fan, if there is a young fan out there listening to this podcast right now and they are looking to get into the business and they're going online and researching you and who you are and you have the opportunity to give them one piece of advice about the wrestling business, what would be that piece of advice that you would give that young fan? Oh, um, learn from as many different places as you can. And what I mean by that is learn as many different styles if you can get the opportunity, learn from a reputable school, obviously, and then travel as much as you can. And if you can go out of the country, if you can go to England, England and wrestle in that style, go to Germany, go to Japan, learn as many different styles as you can. And also learn to work on the fly, learn to call a match in the ring. Nobody does that anymore. You know, the, especially WWE, it's all completely scripted, uh, you know, so they don't have many opportunities to do that, but it's still important to be able to do that because when you have the ability to do that, you have the ability to read a crowd and make changes if you need to, to what you're doing, uh, you know, during a match. But, uh, um, those are the big ones, um, uh, Find a reputable school, uh, make sure that you're learning and, and go to a school that doesn't just have a ring and teach you how to do wrestling moves. Go to a, go to a school that teaches you about the wrestling business, about how to negotiate, about how to cut promos, about how to, you know, how to live on the road that teaches you everything because, you know, not many, you know, they back in my day when I was coming up, a ring in a warehouse was basically a school and there weren't many of them. Now these schools are a lot more intricate. I'm, I'm seeing some of these places uh, in Ohio and near where I live that have, are very well-rounded and teach people all those different aspects of the business. So go to a reputable school and learn from as many different places and different styles as you can. That, that would be my advice to uh, newcomers coming up in the business. That's absolutely great advice. This interview has been absolutely amazing. I appreciate your honesty and how candid you were. And I had a blast. I hope you have fun too. I didn't. Thank you again. Thank you very much for having me on your show. I appreciate it, George. All right, Mike, you take care. Enjoy the rest of your evening. And thank you so much. All right. Take care. Bye. Well, guys, that was Duke the Dumpster Brosey. What an amazing interview. So honored to talk to this legend today. And agree with me or don't agree with me, but that's what I consider him. I consider him a legend. I consider him, based off that Jerry Lawler uh, clip that will live in empathy for me anyways and hold a special place in my heart, I consider him the godfather of hardcore. Disagree, agree. It's all good. That's what we wrestling fans do. Not all of us can see eye to eye. As always, I am your host, your boy, George McKay. Thank you so much for listening to Straight Talk Wrestling. And don't forget to tune in to episode 119 next week. And, man, I want to tell you, I do. So I'm going to give you a hint. This next interview is a fellow Paisan of mine. As you all know, I'm half Italian and half Scottish. This wrestler coming up next week is a Paisan from my Italian side. That's all I'm going to give you. 
Tune in next week. As always, I'm your host. Thank you so much for listening. Peace. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week for another episode on Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and iHeartRadio. Also follow us on Facebook at Straight Talk Wrestling, on Instagram at Straight Talk Wrestling, and on Twitter at underscore Straight Talk. And for all our merchandise, you can search us on ProWrestlingTees.com. Oh.